Chapter 2 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2. The Betsy Jane Once fairly out of the breakers, the fishermen, at great risk to their little craft, opened the companion leading down into the seamew's tiny after-cabin, and the poor souls from the wreck were conveyed below, out of the reach of the bitter blast and the incessant showers of icy spray. Bob and two or three others of the smack's crew also went below and busied themselves in lighting a fire, routing out such blankets and wraps of various kinds as happened to be on board, and in other ways doing what they could to ameliorate the deplorable condition of their guests. Fortunately, the wind, dead against them on the way out, was fair for the homeward run, and the seamew rushed through the water at a rate which caused Dickie Bird to exclaim, "'Blessed if the little huzzy don't seem to know as they poor innocent babbies' lives depends on their getting into Mother Salmon's hands and atween her hot blankets within the next hour. Just see how she's smoking through it.' Very soon the middle lightship was reached, and as the smack swept past, old Bill shouted to the lightkeepers the joyful news of the rescue. A few minutes afterwards, three rockets were sent up at short intervals from the smack, as an intimation to Mother Salmon that her good services were required, and in due time the gallant little smack found her way back to her moorings in the creek. The anchor was scarcely let go when three or four boats dashed alongside, and, "'Well, Bill, old man, what luck?' was the general question. Five and twenty, thank God. Men, women, and children,' responded old Bill. "'Did you catch sight of our rockets, boys?' Ay, ay, never fear, and mother ashore there. She's never turned in at all this blessed night. Said as she was sure you'd bring somebody in. And a rare rousing fire she's got roaring up the chimbley, and blankets no end. All the beds made up and warmed, and everything ready, down to a rattling good hot supper. So let's have these poor souls up on deck. You've got em below, I suppose. And get em ashore. They must be pretty nigh froze to death, I should think. At Bill's cheery summons, the survivors from the wreck staggered to the smack's deck, their cramped and frozen limbs scarcely able to sustain them, and the bewildered glances which they cast round them at the scarcely ruffled waters of the creek glancing in the clear frosty moonlight, with the fishing smacks and other small craft riding cosily at anchor on either side, the straggling village of Brightlingsea within a stone's throw, a tiny light still twinkling here and there in the cottage windows, and a perfect blaze of ruddy light streaming from the windows of the anchor, and flooding the road with its cheerful radiance. The bewildered glances with which they regarded this scene, I say, showed that even now they were scarcely able to realize the fact of their deliverance. But they were not left long in doubt about it. As they emerged with slow and painful steps from the smack's tiny companion, strong arms seized them, all enwrapped in blankets as they were, and quickly but tenderly passed them over the side into the small boats, which had come off from the shore for them. Then, as each boat received its complement, shove off was the word. The bending oars churned the water into miniature whirlpools, and with a dozen powerful strokes the boat was sent half her length high and dry upon the shore. Then strong arms once more raised the sufferers, and quickly bore them within the wide-open portal of the hospitable anchor where Mother Salmon waited to receive them. "'Eh, goodness sakes alive!' she exclaimed, as the first man appeared within the flood of light which streamed from the anchor windows. "'You, Sam, you don't mean to say as there's women amongst them?' "'Ah, that there is, mother,' panted Sam, "'and children, poor little helpless babbies, some on em too.' 
the quick warm tears of womanly sympathy instantly flashed into the worthy woman's eyes but she was not one prone to much indulgence in sentiment particularly at a time like the present so instead of lifting up her hands and giving expression to her pity in words she faced sharply round upon the maids who were crowding forward with the curiosity of their sex to catch a first glimpse of the strangers and exclaimed now then you idle huzzies what do you mean by blocking up the passage so that a body can get neither in nor out do you want these poor souls to be quite froze to death before you let some in you emily be off to number four and run the warming pan through the bed and give the fire a good stir emma do wake up child and take a couple of buckets of hot water up to number four and put em in the bath run mary jane for your life and see if the fire in number seven is burning properly and you susan be off and turn down all the beds the maids rushed off to their several duties like startled deer while the mistress turned to sam and directed him to convey his burden to number four herself leading the way a number of women the mothers and wives of the fishermen had gathered at the anchor as soon as it was known that the smack had gone out to a wreck in order that they might be at hand to render any assistance which might be required they were all collected in the bar parlor and two of them now rose in obedience to mother salmon's summons and following her upstairs took over from sam their patient and shutting the door lost not a moment in applying such restoratives and adopting such measures as their experience taught them would be most likely to prove beneficial the rest of the survivors speedily followed the women and children being promptly conveyed to the rooms already prepared for them but the men for their most part proved to be very little the worse for their exposure seeming to need for their restoration a good hot supper more than anything else and this contingency also having by mother salmon's experience and foresight been provided for the rescued and their rescuers were soon seated together at the same table busily engaged in the endeavor to restore their exhausted energies one man only of the entire party seemed unable to do justice to the meal spread before him and this was the master of the wrecked ship he seated himself indeed at the table and made an effort to eat and drink but his thoughts were evidently elsewhere he could not settle comfortably down to his meal but kept gliding softly out of the room to glide as softly back again after an absence of a few minutes when he would abstractedly swallow a mouthful or two and then glide out once more at length after a somewhat longer absence than before he returned to the room in which the meal was being discussed the look of care and anxiety on his face replaced by an expression of almost overwhelming joy and walking up to bob somewhat astonished that individual by exclaiming young man let me without further delay tender you and your brave comrades my most hearty thanks for the rescue of my passengers my crew and myself from a situation of deadly peril a rescue which was only effected at very great hazard to yourselves and which was successfully accomplished mainly i am sure your comrades will join me in saying through your indomitable courage and perseverance the debt which i owe you is one that it will be quite impossible for me ever to repay i can merely acknowledge it and testify to the overwhelming nature of my obligation for to your gallant behavior under god i owe not only the deliverance of twenty-five human lives from a watery grave but also the safety of my wife and only child all in fact that i have left to me to make life worth living as i have said it will be quite impossible for me ever to cancel so heavy a debt but what i can do i will your conduct shall be so represented in the proper quarter as to secure for you all the honor which such noble service demands and for the rest 
I hope you will always remember that Captain Staunton, that is my name, will deem no service that you may require of him too great to be promptly rendered. And what I say to you especially, I say also to all your gallant comrades, who will, I hope, accept the grateful thanks which I now tender to them. Poor Bob blushed like a girl at these warm outspoken praises, and stammered some deprecatory remarks, which, however, were drowned by the more vigorous disclaimers of the rest of the fishermen and their somewhat noisy applause of the shipwrecked captain's manly speech, in the midst of which commotion Mother Salmon entered to enjoin strict silence and to announce the gratifying intelligence that all the women and children were doing well, including the skipper's little daughter, the apparently lifeless body of whom Bob had recovered when he first boarded the wreck. A low murmur of satisfaction greeted this announcement, and then all hands fell to once more upon their supper, which was soon afterwards concluded, when old Bill and his mates, shaking hands heartily all round, retired to seek the rest which they had so well earned, while the shipwrecked men were disposed of as well as circumstances would allow in the few remaining unappropriated bedrooms of the hospitable anchor. By noon next day the shipwrecked party had all so far recovered that they were able to set out on the journey to their several homes. Captain Staunton sought out old Bill and arranged with him respecting the salvage of the wrecked ship's cargo, after which he handed the veteran fisherman, as remuneration for services already rendered, a draft upon the owners of the diadem, which more than satisfied the smack's crew for all their perils and exertions of the previous night. He then left for London to perform the unpleasant duty of reporting to his owners the loss of their ship. Mentioning, before he left, the probability of his speedy return to personally superintend the salvage operations. In bidding adieu to Bob, who happened to be present while the final arrangements with old Bill were being made, Captain Staunton remarked to him, "'I have been thinking a great deal about you, my lad. You are a fine, gallant young fellow, and it seems to me it would be a very great pity for you to waste your life in pursuit of the arduous and unprofitable occupation of fishing. What say you? Would you like to take to the sea as a profession?' If so, let me know. I owe you a very heavy debt, as I have already said, and nothing would afford me greater pleasure than to repay you, as far as possible, by personally undertaking your training, and afterwards using what little interest I possess to advance you in your career. Think the matter over, and consult with your father upon it. He was not then aware of poor Bob's peculiar position. And let me know your decision when I return. Now, once more, good-bye for the present." The weather having moderated by the next day, the Seamew's crew commenced salvage operations at the wreck, and for more than a week all hands were so busy, early and late, that Bob had literally no time to think about, much less to consult with old Bob respecting Captain Staunton's proposal. On the third day the chief mate of the diadem appeared at Brightlingsea, having been sent down by the owners to superintend the work at the wreck. He announced that he had been sent instead of Captain Staunton, in consequence of the appointment of the latter by his owners, to the command of a fine new ship then loading in the London docks for Australia. It appeared that Captain Staunton stood so high in the estimation of his employers, and possessed such a thoroughly established reputation for skill and sobriety that, notwithstanding his recent misfortune, there had been no hesitation about employing him again. A few days later a letter came from the captain himself to Bob confirming this intelligence, and stating that he had then a vacancy for his young friend if he chose to fill it. Bob, however, as has already been remarked, was at the time too busy to give the matter proper consideration, so he wrote back saying as much, and hinting that perhaps on the return of the ship to England he might be glad to have a repetition of the offer. 
To this letter a reply soon came, announcing the immediate departure of the ship, and containing a specific offer to receive Bob on board in the capacity of apprentice on her next voyage. The idea of taking to the sea as a profession was so thoroughly novel to Bob that he had at first some little difficulty in realizing all that it meant. Hitherto he had had no other intention or ambition than to potter about in a fishing smack with old Bill, living a hard life, earning a precarious subsistence, and possibly, if exceptionally fortunate, at some period in the far distant future, attaining to the ownership of a smack himself. But a month or two later on, when all had been saved that was it was possible to save from the wreck, and when nothing remained of the once fine ship but a few shattered timbers embedded in the sand, and showing at low water like the fragment of a skeleton of some leviathan, when Bob found time to fully discuss the matter with old Bill Maskell and his mates, these worthies painted the advantages of a regular seaman's life over those of the mere fishermen in such glowing colors, and dwelt so enthusiastically upon the prospects which would surely open out before our hero under the patronage of a man like Captain Staunton, that Bob soon made up his mind to accept the captain's offer and join him on his return to England. Having once come to this decision, the lad was all impatience for the time to arrive when he might embark upon his career. As it is with most lads, so it was with him. The prospect of a complete change in his mode of life was full of pleasurable excitement, and perhaps it was only natural that, now he had decided to forsake it, the monotonous humdrum fisher's life became almost unbearably irksome to him. Old Bill Maskell was not slow to observe this, and with the unselfishness which is so eminently characteristic of him, though he loved the lad as his own soul, he decided to shorten for him, as far as possible, the weary time of waiting, and send him away at once. Accordingly, on the first opportunity that presented itself, he remarked to Bob, "'I say, boy, I've been turning matters over in my mind a bit, and it seems to me as a voyage or two in a coaster do you a power of good afore you ships aboard a South Spainer. You're as handy a lad as a man need wish to be shipmates with, aboard a fore-and-aft-rigged craft, but you ought to know summat about square-rigged vessels, too, afore you sail foreign. Now, what do you say to a trip or two in a collier brig, just to learn the ropes like, eh?' Note, South Spainer, a term frequently employed by seamen to designate a foreign-going ship, especially one sailing to southern waters. Life on board a collier is not, as a rule, a condition of unalloyed felicity, but Bob was happily, or unhappily, ignorant of this. The suggestion conveyed to his mind only the idea of change, and his face lighted joyfully up at his benefactor's proposition, to which he at once eagerly assented. Bob's slender wardrobe was accordingly at once overhauled and put into a condition of thorough repair. Bill, meantime, employing himself laboriously in an effort to ascertain, through the medium of a voluminous correspondence, the whereabouts of an old friend of his, last heard of by the said Bill as in command of a collier brig, with a view to the securing for Bob a berth as ordinary seaman under a skipper of whom Bill knew something, and who could be trusted to treat the lad well. Old Bill's labors were at length rewarded with success, Captain, as he loved to be styled, Turnbull's address in London being definitely ascertained, together with the gratifying intelligence that he still retained the command of the Betsy Jane. Matters having progressed thus far satisfactorily, Old Bill's next business was to write to Captain Turnbull, asking him if he could receive Bob on board, and in about a month's time a favorable answer was received, naming a day upon which Bob was to run up to London and sign articles. 
Bob's departure from Brightlingsea was regarded by his numerous friends in the village quite in the light of an event. And when the morning came, and with it the market cart which was to convey him and his belongings, together with old Bill, to Colchester, where they were to take train to London, nearly all the fishermen in the place, to say nothing of their wives and little ones, turned out to say farewell. The journey was accomplished in safety and without adventure, and shortly after noon Bill and Bob found themselves threading their way through the narrow crowded streets to the captain's address, somewhere in the neighborhood of Wapping. On reaching the house, the gallant skipper was found to be at home, in the act of partaking, together with his wife and family, of the midday meal, which on that occasion happened to be composed of pickled pork and taters. Old Bill and Bob were gruffly but cordially invited to join the family circle, which they did, Bob making a thoroughly hearty meal, quite unmoved by the coquettish endeavors of Miss Turnbull, a stout, good-tempered, but not particularly beautiful damsel of some seventeen summers, to attract the attention and excite the admiration of Pa's handsome new sailor. Captain Turnbull proved to be a very stout but not very tall man, with a somewhat vacant expression of feature, and a singular habit of looking fixedly and in apparent amazement for a full minute at anyone who happened to address him. These, with a slow, ponderous movement of body, a fixed belief in his own infallibility, and an equally firm belief in the unsurpassed perfections of the Betsy Jane, were his chief characteristics. And as he is destined to figure for a very brief period only in the pages of the present history, we need not analyze him any further. After dinner had been duly discussed, together with a glass of grog, so far at least as the captain, his wife, and old Bill were concerned, our two friends were invited by the proud commander to pay a visit of inspection to the Betsy Jane. That venerable craft proved to be lying in the stream, the outside vessel of a number of similar craft, moored in a tier, head and stern to great slimy buoys, laid down as permanent moorings in the river. A wherry was engaged by the skipper for which old Bill paid when the time of settlement arrived, the captain being apparently unconscious of the fact that payment was necessary, and the three proceeded on board. The brig turned out to be about as bad a specimen of her class as could be met with. Old, rotten, leaky, and dirty beyond all power of description. Nevertheless, her skipper waxed so astonishingly eloquent when he began to speak her praises that the idea never seemed to occur to either Bill or Bob that to venture to see in her would be simply tempting providence, and it was consequently soon arranged that our hero was to sign articles, nominally as an ordinary seaman, but, in consideration of his ignorance of square-rigged craft, to receive only the pay of a boy. This point being settled, the party returned to the shore, old Bill and Bob going for a saunter through some of the principal streets, to enjoy the cheap but rare luxury, to simple country people like themselves, of a look into the shop windows, with the understanding that they were to accept the hospitality of the Turnbull mansion until the time for sailing should arrive on the morrow. Bob wished very much to visit one of the theaters that evening, a theater being a place of entertainment which up to that time he had never had an opportunity of entering, but old Bill, anxious to cultivate on Bob's behalf the goodwill of the Betsy Jane's commander, thought it would be wiser to spend the evening with that worthy. This arrangement was accordingly carried out, the best parlor being thrown open by Mrs. Turnbull for the occasion. Miss Turnbull and Miss Jemima Turnbull contributed in turn their share toward the evening's entertainment by singing Hearts of Oak, The Bay of Biscay, Then Farewell My Trim-Built Wary, and other songs of a similar character, to a somewhat uncertain accompaniment upon a discordant jangling old piano, the chief merit of which was that a large proportion of its notes were dumb. 
Their gallant father, meanwhile, sipped his grog and puffed away at his churchwarden, in a high-backed, uncomfortable-looking chair in a corner near the fire, utterly sunk, apparently, in a fit of the most profound abstraction, from which he would occasionally start without the slightest warning, and in a most alarming manner, to bellow out, generally at the wrong time, and to the wrong tune, something which his guests were expected to regard as a chorus. The chorus ended, he would again sink like a stone, as abruptly back into his inner consciousness as he had emerged from it. So passed the evening without the slightest pretense at conversation, though both Bill and Bob made several determined efforts to start a topic, and so as music, even of the kind performed by the Mrs. Turnbull, Paul's after a time, about 11 p.m., old Bill hinted at fatigue from the unusual exertions of the day, proposed retirement, and, with Bob, was shown to the room wherein was located the shakedown offered them by the hospitable skipper. The shakedown proved to be in reality two fair-sized beds, which would have been very comfortable had they been much cleaner than they were, and our two friends enjoyed a very fair night's rest. Bob duly signed articles on the following morning, and then, in company with his shipmates, proceeded on board the Betsy Jane. Captain Turnbull put in an appearance about an hour afterwards when the order was given to unmoor ship, and the brig began to drop down the river with the tide. Toward evening a fine fair wind sprang up, and the Betsy Jane, being only in ballast, then began to travel at a rate which threw her commander into an indescribable state of ecstasy. The voyage was accomplished without the occurrence of any incident worth recording, and in something like a week from the date of sailing from London, Bob found himself at Shields, with the brig under a coal drop, loading again for the Thames. Some half a dozen similarly uneventful voyages to the Tyne and back to London were made by Bob and the Betsy Jane. The life of a seaman on board a collier is usually of a very monotonous character, without a single attractive feature in it, unless, maybe, that it admits of frequent short sojourns at home, and Bob's period of service under Captain Turnbull might have been dismissed with the mere mention of the circumstance, but for the incident which terminated that service. It occurred on the sixth voyage which Bob had made in the Betsy Jane. The brig had sailed from the Tyne, loaded with coals for London as usual, with a westerly wind which, however, shortly afterwards backed to south-southwest, with a rapidly falling barometer. The appearance of the weather grew very threatening, which, coupled with the facts that the craft was old, weak, and a notoriously poor sailor with the wind anywhere but on her quarter, seemed to suggest, as the most prudent course under the circumstances, a return to the port they had just left. The mate, after many uneasy glances to windward, turned to his superior officer, who was sitting by the companion placidly smoking, and proposed this. The skipper slowly withdrew his pipe from his mouth, and after regarding his mate for some moments, as though that individual were a perfect stranger who had suddenly and unaccountably made his appearance on board, ejaculated, Why? Well, I'm afeard we're going to have a very dirty night on it, was the reply. Umph, was the captain's only commentary, after which he resumed his pipe and seemed inclined to doze. Meanwhile, the wind, which had hitherto been of the strength of a fair working breeze, rapidly increased in force with occasional sharp squalls preceded by heavy showers of rain, while the threatening aspect of the weather grew every moment more unmistakable. The brig was under topgallant sails, tearing and thrashing through the short choppy sea in a way which sent the spray flying continuously in dense clouds in over her bluff bows, until her decks were mid-leg deep in water, and her stumpy topgallant masts were whipping about aloft 
to such an extent that they threatened momentarily to snap off, short at the caps. It was not considered etiquette on board the Betsy Jane for the mate to issue an order while the captain had the watch, as was the case on the present occasion, but seeing a heavy squall approaching, he now waved etiquette for the nonce and shouted, "'Stand by your togallant halyards! Let go and clue up! Haul down the jib!' "'Eh!' said the skipper, deliberately removing his pipe from his mouth, and looking round him in the greatest apparent astonishment. Down rushed the squall, howling and whistling through the rigging, careening the brig until the water spouted up through her scuppers, and causing the gear aloft to crack and surge ominously. "'Let fly the topsail halyards, fore and main!' yelled the mate. The men leapt to their posts. The ropes rattled through the blocks. The yards slid down the topmasts until they rested on the caps, and with a terrific thrashing and fluttering of canvas the brig rose to a more upright position, saving her spars by a mere hair's breadth. Captain Turnbull rose slowly to his feet, and advancing to where the mate stood near the main rigging, tapped that individual softly on the shoulder with his pipe-stem. The mate turned round. Captain Turnbull looked fixedly at him for some moments, as though he thought he recognized him, but was not quite sure, and then observed, "'I say, are you the captain of this ship?' "'No, sir,' replied the mate. "'Very well, then,' retorted the skipper. "'Don't you do it again.' Then to the crew, all of whom were by this time on deck, Bows down your reef tackles and double reef the tarpsels, then stow the mainsail. Don't you think we'd better run back to the tyne afore we drops too far to leeward to fetch it? inquired the mate. The captain looked at him in his characteristic fashion for a full minute, inquired, Are you the captain of this ship? And then, without waiting for a reply, replaced his pipe between his lips, staggered back to his seat, and contemplatively resumed his smoking. The fact is that Captain Turnbull was actually pondering upon the advisability of putting back when the mate unluckily suggested the adoption of such a course. Dull and inert, as was the skipper of the Betsy Jane, he was by no means an unskilled seaman. The fact that he had safely navigated the crazy old craft to and fro between the Thames and the Tyne, in fair weather and foul, for so many years, was sufficient evidence of this. He had duly marked the portentous aspect of the weather, and was debating within himself the question whether he should put back, or whether he should keep on and take his chance of weathering the gale, as he had already weathered many others. Unfortunately, his mind was, like himself, rather heavy and slow in action, and he had not nearly completed the process of making it up when the mate offered his suggestion. That settled the question at once. The captain was as obstinate and unmanageable a man as ever breathed and it was only necessary for someone to suggest a course, and he would at once adopt a line of action in direct opposition to it. Hence his resolve to remain at sea in the present instance. Having finally committed himself to this course, however, he braced himself together for the coming conflict with the elements, and when the watch below was called at eight bells, all hands were put to the task of placing the ship under thoroughly snug canvas before the relieved watch was permitted to go below. The brig was normally in so leaky a condition that she regularly required pumping out every two hours when under canvas, a task which in ordinary weather usually occupied some ten minutes. If the weather was stormy, it took somewhat longer to make the pumps suck, and accordingly no one was very much surprised when, on the watch going to the pumps just before eight bells, an honest quarter of an hour was consumed in freeing the old craft from the water which had drained in here and there during the last two hours. Their task at length accomplished, the men in the skipper's watch, of whom Bob was one, 
lost no time in tumbling into their berths, all standing, where they soon forgot their wet and miserable condition in profound sleep. Captain Turnbull, contrary to his usual custom, at the conclusion of his watch retired from the deck only to change his wet garments and envelop himself in a suit of very old and very leaky oilskins, when he resumed once more his favorite seat by the companion, stolidly resolved to watch the gale out, let it last as long as it might. Note, all standing in this case means without removing any of their clothing. A gale in good truth it had by this time become, the wind howling furiously through the brig's rigging, and threatening momentarily to blow her old, worn, and patched canvas out of the bolt ropes. The dull, leaden-colored, ragged clouds raced tumultuously athwart the moonlit sky, now veiling the scene in deep and gloomy shadow as they swept across the moon's disk, and anon opening out for an instant to flood the brig, the sea, and themselves in the glory of the silver rays. The caps of the waves, torn off by the wind, filled the air with a dense salt rain, which every now and then gleamed up astern with all the magical beauty of the lunar rainbow. But though the scene would doubtless have ravished the soul of an artist by its weird splendor, it is probable that such an individual would have wished for a more comfortable viewpoint than the deck of the Betsy Jane. That craft was now rolling and pitching heavily in the short choppy sea, smothering herself with spray everywhere forward of the foremast, filling her decks with water, which swished and surged restlessly about and in over the men's boots tops with every motion of the vessel, and straining herself until the noise of her creaking timbers and bulkheads rivaled the shriek of the gale. At four bells the Betsy Jane gave the watch just half an hour of steady work to pump her out. This task at length ended, the men, wet and tired, sought such partial shelter as was afforded by the lee of the longboat where she stood over the main hatch, the lee side of the galley, or peradventure, the interior of the same, and there enjoyed such forgetfulness of their discomfort as could be obtained in a weasel-like surreptitious sleep, with one eye open, on watch for the possible approach of the skipper or mate, all of them, that is, except one, who called himself the lookout. This man, well cased in oilskin, stationed himself at the bowsprit end, which, being just beyond the reach of the spray from the bows, was possibly as dry a place as there was throughout the ship excepting perhaps her cabin, and sitting astride the spar and wedging his back firmly in between the two parts of the double forestay, found himself so comfortably situated that in less than five minutes he was sound asleep. Captain Turnbull, meanwhile, occupied his favorite seat near the companion and smoked contemplatively while the mate staggered fore and aft from the mainmast to the taffrail on the weather side of the deck, it being his watch. Suddenly the mate stopped short in his walk and the skipper ejaculated, Umph! The attention of both had at the same moment been arrested by something peculiar in the motion of the brig. "'Sound the pumps,' observed the skipper, apparently addressing the moon, which at that moment gleamed brightly forth from behind a heavy cloud. The mate took the sounding-rod, and, first of all drying it and the line carefully, dropped it down the pump-well. Hauling it up again, he took it aft to the binnacle, the somewhat feeble light from which showed that the entire rod and a portion of the line was wet." "'More'n three feet water in the hold!' exclaimed the mate. "'Call the hands,' remarked Captain Turnbull, directing his voice down the companion as though he were speaking to someone in the cabin. The crew soon mustered at the pumps and manned them both, relieving each other every ten minutes. After three-quarters of an hour of vigorous pumping, there was as little sign of the pump sucking as at the commencement. They were then again sounded, 
with the result that the crew appeared to have gained something like three inches upon the leak. The men accordingly resumed pumping, in a half-hearted sort of way, however, which seemed to say that they had no very great hope of freeing the ship. Another hour passed, and the pumps were again sounded. Three foot ten! The leak gains on us!' proclaimed the mate in a low voice, as he and the skipper bent together over the rod at the binnacle lamp. Shortly afterwards the wheel was relieved. The man who had been steering, taking at the pumps the place of the one who had relieved him. A hurried consultation immediately took place amongst the men, and presently one of them walked aft to where the skipper was seated and remarked, "'The chaps is saying, skipper, as how they thinks the best thing we can do is to upstick and run for the nearest port.' The skipper looked inquiringly at the man for so long a time that the fellow grew quite disconcerted, after which he shook his head hopelessly, as though he had been addressed in some strange and utterly unintelligible language, and, withdrawing his pipe from his mouth, pointed solemnly in the direction of the pumps. The man took the hint and retired. The mate, who had witnessed this curious interview, then passed over to the lee side of the deck, and steadying himself by the companion, bent down and said in a low voice to his superior, "'After all, Cap'n, Tom's about right.' The old barky will go down under our feet unless we can get her in somewheres pretty soon. Captain Turnbull, with his hands resting on his knees and his extinguished pipe placed bowl downwards between his teeth, regarded his mate with the blank astonishment we may imagine in one who believes he at last actually sees a genuine ghost, and finally gasped in sepulchral tones. Are you the captain of this ship? The mate knew that after this there was nothing more to be said. So he walked forward to the pumps and, by voice and example, strove to animate the men to more earnest efforts. Another hour passed. The pumps were again sounded, and now it became evident that the leak was rapidly gaining. The general opinion of the men was that the laboring of the brig in the short sea had strained her so seriously as to open more or less all her seams, or that a butt had started. They pumped away for another hour, and then, feeling pretty well fagged out, and finding on trial that the leak gained upon them with increasing rapidity, they left the pumps, and began to clear away the boats. The mate made a strong effort to persuade them to return to their duty, but, being himself by that time convinced of the impossibility of saving the ship, he was unsuccessful. Seeing this, he too retired below, and hastily bundling together his own traps and those of the skipper, brought them on deck and placed them in the stern sheets of the longboat. The men had by this time brought their bags and chests on deck, and finding that the brig had meanwhile settled so deep in the water that her deck was awash, they lost no time in getting their belongings, as well as a bag or two of bread and a couple of breakers of water, into the boat. The Betsy Jane was then hove to, and as she was rolling far too heavily to render it possible to hoist the boat out, the men proceeded to knock the brig's bulwarks away on the lee side, with the intention of launching her off the deck. This task they at last accomplished, aided materially therein by the sea, which was by this time washing heavily across the deck. The crew then passed into her one by one, Bob among the rest, and made their final preparations for leaving the devoted brig. Seeing that all was ready, the mate then went up to the skipper, who still maintained his position on his favorite seat, and said, "'Come, skipper, we're only waiting for you, and by all appearances we mustn't wait very long neither.' Captain Turnbull raised his head like one awakened from a deep sleep, glanced vacantly round the deserted decks, pulled strongly two or three times at his long-extinguished pipe, and then two tears welled slowly up into his eyes, and, overflowing the lids, 
rolled one down either cheek. Then he rose quietly to his feet, and, with possibly the only approach to dignity which his actions had ever assumed, pointed to the boat and said, "'I'm captain of this ship. You go fust.' The mate needed no second bidding. He sprang to the ship's side and stepped thence into the boat, taking his place at the tiller. Captain Turnbull, with his usual deliberation, followed. He was no sooner in the boat than the anxious crew shoved off, and, bending to their oars, rowed as rapidly as possible away from their dangerous proximity to the sinking brig. The short summer night was past, day had long since broken, and though the gale still blew strongly, the clouds had dispersed, and away to the eastward the sky was ablaze with the opal and delicate rose tints which immediately precede the reappearance of the sun. A few minutes later, long arrowy shafts of light shot upward into the clear blue sky, and then a broad golden disk rose slowly above the wave crests and tipped them with liquid fire. The refulgent beams flashed upon the laboring hull and grimy canvas of the brig as she lay wallowing in the trough of the sea a quarter of a mile away, transmuting her spars and rigging into bars and threads of purest gleaming gold, and changing her for the moment into an object of dreamlike beauty. The men with one accord ceased rowing to gaze upon their late home, as she now glittered before their eyes in such unfamiliar aspect, and, as they did so, her bows rose high into the air, dripping with liquid gold, then sank down again slowly, slowly lower and lower still until, with a long graceful sliding movement, she plunged finally beneath the wave. "'There goes the old hooker to Davy Jones's locker, sparkling like a diamond. God bless her. Good-bye, old lass.' Goodbye, shouted the men, and then as she vanished from their sight, they gave three hearty cheers to her memory. At the same time, Captain Turnbull rose in the stern sheets of the boat, and facing round in the direction of the sinking brig, solemnly lifted from his head the old fur cap which crowned his somewhat scanty locks. He saw that her last moment was at hand, and his lips quivered convulsively for an instant. Then in accents of powerful emotion he burst forth into the following oration. Then fare thee well, my old Betty Jane. Farewell for ever and a day. I am bound down the river in an old steamboat. So pull and haul, O, oh, pull and haul away. Goodbye, old ship, a handsomer craft, a purtier sea-boat, or a smarter wessel under canvas, whether upon a taut bowline or going free, never cleared out of the port of London. For a matter of nigh upon forty year you've carried me, man and boy, backwards and forwards in safety and comfort over these here seas, and now like a jade you goes and founders, a desartin of me in my old age, arter a lifetime spent upon the heaven bosom of the stormy ocean, where the winds do blow, do blow, you're bound today to your last moorings in old Davy's locker. Well then, good-bye, Betsy Jane, my beauty. Dear you are to me as the child of a man's age. May your old timbers find a soft and easy resting place in their last berth, and if it warn't for the old woman and lasses ashore there, I'd as lief go down with thee as be where I am. Then as the brig disappeared, he replaced the fur cap upon his head, brushed his knotty hand impatiently across his eyes, flung his pipe bitterly into the sea, and sadly resumed his seat. A minute afterwards he looked intently skyward and exclaimed, Give way, boys, and keep her dead afore it. I'm captain of this boat. The men, awe-stricken by the extraordinary display of deep feeling and quaint rugged eloquence, 
which had just been wrung from their hitherto phlegmatic and taciturn skipper, stretched to their oars in dead silence, mechanically keeping the boat stern on to the sea, and so regulating her speed as to avoid the mischance of being pooped or overrun by the pursuing surges. About midday, by which time the gale had broken, they sighted a schooner bound for the Thames, the master of which received them and their traps on board. Four days afterwards they landed in London, and upon receiving their wages up to the day of the Betsy Jane's loss, dispersed to their several homes. End of chapter 2